Welcome to the Danny Goldberg Rock and Rolls Hour. In this podcast, Danny shares his longtime connection to the path of the heart, as well as his very engaged life of social activism. If you are interested in supporting Danny's podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Danny. Hi, <laughs> this is Danny Goldberg. This is Rock and Rolls, and I'm excited today because my best friend Steve Earle is talking to me. Steve's a multiple Grammy winner, author, and actor, and I've been lucky enough to work with him for 15 years now. So I want to start with Bill Wilson. I know you're writing about him, thinking about him, and he, you've talked to him. You've said to me you feel he's an American saint, kind of on the par with yeah, Buddha. Yeah, and yeah. I think it, yeah, I think it goes beyond America too, but yeah. well beyond America. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that. Well, I meant he was American. I, I got to be careful. Just for me, myself, what you say doesn't matter, but what I say does. Um, uh, me and my sponsor established uh, some rules for this for me talking about 12-step programs I won't say the name of a particular fellowship but I will say 12-step programs and we will talk about Bill W you can say what you said but yeah, I'll yeah. say Bill W and everybody knows what we're talking about and that's what I have to do this sort of barely satisfy the traditions that exist within the fellowship but no I think he's a very big deal and there's a sort of personal connection for me because of my grandfather I um, grew up with the 12 steps and the serenity prayer on the wall because my grandfather, and he wasn't really my grandfather. He was my mother's stepfather. And for people who don't know it, say what the serenity prayer is. It's pretty short. Well, it's, you know, it's actually part of a longer prayer. I don't know know whether I'm violating a tradition there or not, but it's it's actually not. uh, The the fellowship didn't invent it. Uh, It's part of a longer prayer that was originally written in German, but it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, which is the punchline, and as far as I can tell. Uh, and it, I don't know where they got that. Um, I'm probably going to find that out in the research for this book, exactly that moment where, the, where they found the serenity prayer and, and adopted it, because I've become very interested in in the history of this, I, the history connected me to it. I grew up with the steps and the prayer on the wall. And because my grandfather started nearly every 12-step meeting in Northeast Texas. He got sober in New York City right after the war and knew Bill W. and knew Dr. Bob, a, a, a physician who he, the, the, the two of them started trying to help each other stay sober and, and and a lot of people agree. I've got a picture of this moment that was sent to me as a friend of mine on my on my uh, 20th um, anniversary in in the program. And it's a, it's sort of there's a famous painting of of Dr. Bob and Bill W. talking to a person that's in a sanitarium in bed. And that's the moment at which the fellowship begins to exist. Actually, it's two two drunks or addicts getting together and going to visit another one to not to help him to help themselves they've discovered that doing that could help them you know stop this obsession that was killing them and um you know it's uh it's an amazing thing it's been going on for a long time as long as there's been substances that change the way that you feel people have been using them and some people are definitely more prone to that becoming a problem in their lives than others i i think almost anybody can make it a problem if they're persistent about it it's one of those things i think there's a thing that happens in your brain that eventually if you keep 
if you keep uh my, my grandmother says if you lie down with dogs eventually you get fleas and it's one of those things if you just keep asking for it eventually you'll get it but um it's um you know he knew he used to brag about having coffee with bill w my grandfather did because he basically got sober here then went back to northeast texas because his 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 stepfather died and his mother insisted that he come home and, and run the family hardware store. So he goes home. Uh, he's a New York Yankees fan. He has to deal with that to begin with. He can't go to Yankees games anymore. And uh, he could get those on the radio uh, and then later on television. But he also, to have meetings, he had to start, you know, the very first meetings that happened in that part of Northeast Texas, which is funny that the county that he lived in was a dry county to this day doesn't legally have public, you know, on premises consumption and sale of alcohol. But those places, you know, there were lots of alcoholics in those places. People drove as far as they had to drive. To well, we know did. making something illegal doesn't make people stop doing it. It absolutely does not. Um, so I know you've also said to me that, that when you were a kid, taking LSD was one of the things that made you think there was a God or something b bigger than no, no, humanity. I, I, and how does that connect with, with, with your feeling about 12 steps? Well, it, it, um, it, you look at, and, and this is not any disrespect to anybody, and, and I hope I'm not, you know, some people that I know and some people that I don't. Um, you look, I look at... I look at Timothy Leary and Ram Dass. And, you know, Ram Dass, uh, who, you know, was Richard Alper, he, he drank. He was a college professor. He was successful. And he drank, and, and, and by his own admission, quite a bit. And, and you know, uh, yeah, I, think he's, I think he had been started smoking pot. But then he was introduced to LSD. And, and, you know, I think Timothy Leary, who actually, I think, introduced, you know, uh, Ram Dass to psychedelics in the first place, he was on to something and there's not any doubt about it. He, uh, a lot of people give him credit for opening up their eyes and up their hearts. And, and, uh, and, you know, and I don't know anyone personally. And what I've always said, I think you've heard me say is I don't know anyone who's taken real lysergic acid diethylamide 25 that doesn't believe in God. It's just almost impossible. You have to believe that there's something greater than you, but you know, there's then there's those that didn't stop at that point, and mm. and Ramdas did. He mm. went to India and he decided that was you know what he needed to do. And I think uh, you know Ramdas's path is like it's like you know it's like Allen Ginsberg as opposed to a lot of the rest of the beats. He, at one point, it became mm. about writing. It became mm. about what he did, and he had a very. I think I think Allen Ginsberg had an idea of what he was put on the planet to do, and so he concentrated on that rather than the things that sort of opened up his eyes to those things in the first place. He and, knew he knew he was Allen Ginsberg. Yeah, absolutely, no question. Absolutely, about it. and yeah. and Ram Dass knows that he is Ram Dass because yeah. he, you know, and he made a decision at a certain point, and um, you know, so that's what that's what I apply to it because I I have trouble with that. I don't. The only drug I really don't regret taking his LSD. But you know what? I was strung out on acid. When I was a teenager, I took acid as often as I could. I would have taken it every day, but you can't get off on acid every day. It's just right. the weirdness of that chemical. But but I went to school on it and you know, I, I used to take acid and try to try to time it so I was peaking when the bell rang at 3.30 so I could watch all those people trying to get out that little hole at the end of the hallway. I thought that was cool. <laughs> and it was just, you know, it was definitely something I did for fun. But during that process, I realized that 
you know, that what I was seeing um, in front of me every day and what I'd seen up to that point wasn't all there was. And I've never had any problem with the concept of there being a God or calling it God in all that time. You wrote a song called God is God. And I've wanted to, this is a question I've been waiting all this time to ask you because I was sitting next to a, some guy that knew you at a concert a couple of years ago. I think it was in Houston who who was a huge fan of yours and and yet he was troubled by the lyric because in his idea of meditation and spirituality god is inside him right and and you've got the line in there and god ain't me could so i didn't know what to say to him so what would well, you say he, to him? if he wants to believe that that's fine but what my i told i wrote the song for john bias to sing right um, and I was very conscious of what I was writing because you never can tell. Joan sings one of my songs called Christmas in Washington. She changes the lyrics because she won't sing Come Back Emma Goldman because Emma Goldman, in her view, advocated you know, violence as a, as a means to a political end. And so she sings Mahatma Gandhi instead on the lines. And, that's, and she's very hard-headed about that. Um, Is there any other artist you would let change your lyrics besides her? No. She's the only one. Well, she's the only person. There's a, a couple of others, but none of the others have tried. <laughs> and, and, she, and she did it, and, and I was willing to do it. And, and there probably is a limit to how far I would have let Joan go. But, but in that particular case, it was not, it was, I was totally okay with it. Um, but, um, and, and so she knows she's Joan Baez, tr trust me. Um, but I told her when I wrote the song, I said, people are going to think you're in the program when you, when you read this. It is a 12-step view of, of God. The danger, just like, you know, I have to accept the fact that maybe some people can use drugs and alcohol successfully, whatever that is. And it, the point is, it doesn't matter what my opinion is about that. All, all that matters to me is that I know I can't. By the same token, for me, in order to do this, to work these steps, what's necessary, and this is the core of the spirituality of the program, is I need to believe there's a power greater than I am. And so th this, the song comes from a catchphrase of mine that, was, that I used to, used to describe my own, the state of my own spirituality in meetings when I was sharing. And I would say, um, I, so far, my, my spirituality consists of I believe there is a God and it ain't me. And that's the idea. I'm not in charge. And, you know, I also say God, you know, God isn't us. And Joan asked me about that. What does that mean? And I said, U.S., United States of America. I didn't really mean it that way, but that was a coincidence. But I did mean that verse, if you look at it, is about the idea that no group of people is necessarily a power greater than anybody else. That's, that's, that's dangerous. I, I know people in, in the program that say that they start out and they say, well, you can, you can say a power greater than yourself is the group. And I... If, if you need to go there, that's that's great. But but yeah, it's, it's tribalism. That's how it tribalism starts. It spooks me a little starts. bit. Yeah. It spooks me a little bit. Yeah. And and um, so, you know, the whole concept of anonymity in in, in twelve step programs is way more, way deeper than the idea that you can go in there and not say your last name, and therefore people won't know who you are or what you do. That's part of it because shame will keep people out and kill them, and it's a part of the disease. But it's also I I never had that kind of anonymity. I got I got clean on the front page of the Nashville Tennessee and so you know it's it's like for me it's 
it's it's been as, as much about the fact that drug and alcohol, drugs and alcohol are the great equalizers. Right? That that in that program, I'm I'm the same as anybody else in there. I'm only as I only have as much time as the time between now and the time that I woke up this morning. And I still do the same things that I did 21 years ago. I go to meetings, I call my sponsor. And the main thing has saved my life because I've had a rough couple of years. You know, probably needed this stuff more than I, I did the first, you know, 18 or 19 years because, you know, I went through a divorce that I didn't think I was going to go through. I thought I finally had that figured out. I was married the longest I was ever married. Uh, my little boy was diagnosed with autism at exactly the same moment. And what saved my life in the last couple of years was my sponsees. The fact that I had these guys that I was talking to about these principles. And I, there were times when I think, you know what? And I really did for the very first time on a couple of nights, early late at night somewhere, just, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to, I'm going to use, but no, I can't do that because these guys will hear that I did it and they will hear that I did it because my life's pretty public, but the word is going to get back to them anyway. You know, and then in our great mind, even if I wasn't, you know, didn't do what I do. Yeah, like and the, the vibe gets to people. people absolutely. People and they're going to, they're going to say, see, that doesn't work and give themselves permission to go back out and they're going to die. And so at that point, I said, yeah, I guess I better go to a fucking meeting. Yeah. How I listened to the song, because I, there was a, a, a Hindu holy man who, I have high regard for that lived long before I was born named Ramana Maharshi. And his entire teaching, as I understand it, was for people to ask themselves the question of who am I? And the idea is, you know, uh, uh, to go, yeah, I'm not the body because the body keeps changing. I'm not the mind. The mind keeps changing. I'm not the emotions. The emotions keep changing. So who am I? And through that, he got enlightened, you know, and, right. and, and uh, I'm not, I haven't yet, but I think it's a good, um, to my knowledge, but I think it's a good way of looking at it. It's the difference between, it's like Ramdas talks about the difference between role and soul, or some people talk about the difference between the ego and the soul, and that there's kind of a difference between I and me, you yeah. know, in, in, the, in the cosmic uh, scheme of things. That's, that's the rap I tried to give the guy in Texas anyway. All right. Um, but it's... Um, well, for me, the thing is... when you say in the song, there's some folks see things that we don't see. They have the gift of prophecy. I don't, I'm sorry, I got the lyric wrong. But what, what, what is your sense of that, of, of the ability of some people to, to see things that we don't see? And, uh, and, I, and, and how does that connect to being right, an artist? Right. Well, being an artist, I, I, I was put here to do a certain thing. And I had it proven to me in a very visceral way. I stopped doing it because my drug habit took up so much time that I eventually wasn't able to write songs and make shows and do those things. So, and bad things started happening to me. My life fell completely apart. And um, as soon as I stopped doing that, as soon as I stopped taking drugs, I started being able to make shows and I started writing songs again instantly. I wrote Goodbye, one of the best songs I've ever written when I had maybe, what, 18 or 19 days clean after not writing wow. anything for four years. Wow. So it... Um, you know, I really believe that that we're put here for a reason. Uh, the difference after 21 years is at some point, I, I, I believed ever since I got clean that I was spared for a purpose. And that sounds arrogant when you say it like that until you stay clean long enough that it suddenly occurs to you that 
you were spared for a purpose, but you're no longer arrogant enough to assume that you're going to know what it is when you do it. <laughs> so once you get to that point, then you just have to suit up and show up every day. And it may not even be my job. It may be somebody I run into at the merch table after a show. It might be somebody I run into at the gym that I do just because I'm still alive. Uh, you know, it, it might be to see this little boy of mine. Maybe he's going to do I got a little boy with autism, and he hasn't said very much he said about you know since he was 19 months old he said about seven or eight words and and um so he can't tell me everything that he's thinking so i don't know i mean it's maybe i'm waiting to to hear what he's gonna say maybe he's gonna tell me something i i don't know and and so i just show up and i do it all I've been trying to think a lot about the hippie period. It was such a big effect on me. And I know you're a, a little bit younger than me, but I know it a, a, affected you. And what was... Well, my period was still... people exactly your age. My right. uncle was exactly... That gave me my first guitar, my first joint, my first hit of acid, my first Beatle record, Stones record, Bob Dylan record. Was five years older than me. So... so so there's so, there's a lot of visibility about what didn't work. It certainly, uh, whatever Tim Leary intended, uh, uh, he lost the argument to Ken Kesey, and LSD became a party drug and available to millions of people without guides and preparation and any the Bardos or the Tibetan Book of the Dead or anything like that. And and the criminalization of it leads to massive expansion of people doing speed and heroin and a lot of people dying early. There was the arrogance of people that. The, the, the polarity that Ramdas talks about of, of people who were heads looking down on people that were straight. And um, uh, there's, the, there's, the, there's the mixed record of, yeah, me too. <laughs> the mixed record of, of politics. Some things have gotten better. Some things have definitely gotten worse, like the cost of college and, and, right. and, and things like that. And I still um, have a, a sense that there was some light that emerges between 65 and 67 that it's had a lot of ripple effects that are positive, and I, I can't quite uh, get my arms around how to describe it. Did, what do you think was good about it? Well, you know, to me, the, the decades divide up between the fives rather than the zeros. 1945 to 1955, the beginning of World War II to the middle of the 50s has a way lot more to do with each other than from 40 to 50, because the war's in the middle of, you know, the, 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 there was a war there, and that's the war, but... But then 60, you look at, you know, 65 to 70, you know, that's like the, the public at large, you know, LSD comes along in 1966 and 67. Tim and Ram Dass were ahead of that. Right. Ken Kesey was ahead of yeah. that. And I'm not sure that, that, that in defense of the pranksters, you know, I was a pranksters guy rather than a leery guy. And it wasn't that I wasn't spiritual, but I did know that this was a drug. And there was something pure and honest about the way that Kesey approached it. Mm. They thought they were changing that. Wavy Gravy is one of my best friends. And they think that they changed the world. And I think they did, too. And I think a lot of what they did. Wavy was part of a group of people that were the first people that were really called hippies, as far as I know. And, you know, the hog farm, the commune, yeah. he's still a part of it in, right. in Berkeley. And Wavy Gravy is is the form, the former <laughs> Mr. Hugh Romney. Uh, he, was a, he was a poet and a performance artist here in New York City. 
um, knew was here when Dylan played the Gaslight for the first time. You know, was kind of MC and and a, and a comedian too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a performance artist, but calling him a comedian is is, is 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 giving him a little bit. I mean, yes, that's what he did. But it was this new um, Lord Buckley, yeah, Wavy. Yeah, there were these guys. And Lenny Bruce had come from actually being a stand-up comic, but but he was sort of like like Wave was was sort of the first one of the first guys that were just kind of started from scratch being, you know, hip comedians, carrying it to another level. And um, I, I finally found a copy of his record. Oh, really? Yeah, I just, it's, it's waiting for me in San Francisco when I go out to play Hardly Circular Blue Guys. I've been looking for it for, for 15 years. But he went on to be... A member um, of the you know of the pranksters with Ken Kesey who traveled around in a bus and and um, you know they thought LSD was they considered it to be a sacrament too they just didn't consider it to be a solemn sacrament and that's one of the big moments in that culture is that, you know. It's in, you know, the Electroculate Acetest is a really good book, and despite Tom Wolfe's politics, just like all of his books. But the moment when the bus shows up, you know, in upstate New York and at Millbrook, and they're, they're like, you know, the meeting between the pranksters yeah. and, 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 and Larry's people, and it's, they don't, none of them know what to make of each other. Well, they're Leary doing, wouldn't come out of his room. Yeah, he, you know? he never came uh, down. So Albert had, now Ron does, had to deal with them, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, but, but th- so anyway, that aside... They did change the world. I believe that, too. Yeah. I just can't explain it. No, it's hard because it's a step forward and and a lot of steps backward. But I think the step forward that we took was bigger. I think spirituality became... Um, it introduced Eastern spirituality into the West once and for all. On a mass think, level, right? On a mass level. We're still talking about it. And it's, you know, it becomes... It becomes, um, you know, commodified and becomes, uh, which is a, a word I've been I've been really digging for the last week or so because I my I started taking yoga at sixty one and and my yoga teacher said that she had this moment when she was a really successful had a really su- successful business with a large yoga school in New York City and she suddenly had this epiphany that this was not intended to be this big commodified thing that people did for physical exercise. It's great physical exercise. But it is intended as a meditation. And she went back to teaching on a much smaller level to much more serious students and, uh, you know, downsized everything. And and, uh, and uh, it's been a big deal for me in the last mm. few weeks because it was something I thought I limited myself and thought I couldn't do. And it's uh, I started meditating again recently. And I, I realized I looked up and I'd meditated every day for in just a very general, generic kind of way, I start using an app just to get myself back into it. Just a, just a guided meditation mm. on an app. I got to where that wasn't enough, and I was looking for something, and I was noticing that I was, my core strength was kind of going away because I was fishing in New Zealand, and I wasn't wading as strongly in strong rivers as I used to. And I'm, what? Can, and a person I was fishing with said, "You ought to try yoga." And then that those two things connected together. So now I'm on this this path that is. These two things that I feel like are are missing in my life, like a little bit of physical strength and a way to connect myself spiritually every single day, the way I'm where the program tells me I'm supposed to. Anyway, we're supposed to pray and meditate every day. We're only supposed to pray for knowledge of God's will for us. That I mean, that's what we're we're reaching for is reaching a point where, yeah, you know, that's as, I guess that's as close to enlightenment as. 
as uh, as alcoholics and addicts get, as far as the program is concerned, is enough. It'll keep you. That will keep you sober. God's will. You can't get any higher than that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it. That's the deal. That's so, a, that's so you pray for knowledge of God's will for you know you that day, and that's it. Mm. And 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 it's hard. It's hard to pray for only that. You know, God doesn't do parking spaces, but you know, mm. I'm always looking for one. Yeah. So um, Ramdas talks about his guru telling him to love everyone. And it does seem to me, That's certainly one, when I it? took acid uh, and, and came into some of this idea, I felt that, that there was a place in me that, that it, it didn't last very long, but, but that it was an aspiration to, to, to love, that if God made the universe, that God made everybody. Right. And, and uh, it couldn't be everybody except some guy I was having an argument with or whatever. So then right. Ramdas had said that, that the hardest, I think, and I apologize if I'm misquoting him, that, that, that one of the hardest categories for him was Republicans. And that uh, I know that on his puja table, I just saw it went on Facebook that he just added Donald Trump to his puja table next to next to Bush. And, I think he replaced Boehner. With, did he? With, with, I saw Bush and Obama were there yeah, side by side yeah, when I met him. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and so I think so. According to a photo that uh, was just put up. So, uh, how do you uh, stay true to the morality of what you believe in politically in the in the frame of trying to be a spiritual person? Because we do know, and one thing I think that Joan Baez is right about is that to a, after a certain point, too much anger, they, they used to say people that, you know, who were for peace through clenched teeth, you know, were certainly mm-hmm. not going to be effective right. putting aside the morality right. of it. H- how do you balance those different parts of yourself? Well, I'm not sure that I do. I, I think maybe, maybe that's what this new path is about. Maybe this getting really hardcore about a form of spirituality you know, meditation and yoga is, or, you know, yoga as a meditation, but the point is meditating every day. Um, maybe that's where I'm headed with that because I, I'm conflicted with it all the time. I, I believe absolutely politically and intellectually that everybody's equal. And on that level, I love everyone. I really truly believe that. But the fact of the matter is, you know, I piss some people off in the music business and, 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 you know, people in the music business have pissed me off. Those things I can let go of a lot easier because nobody dies in what I do. Right. I, re- I do realize that. But, um, you know, I've had some epiphanies. I've made some progress. I stood from me to you while the state of Texas executed a guy. And this guy was not a wrongfully convicted guy. He was not a victim. He was... I mean, you can go back and make a case for... Uh, he was sort of... You know, mitigators would see him as the absolute classic case study. Is he, this the person you sang about in Jonathan's song? Yeah, Jonathan Nobles. And he was executed in Austin. He was from Austin, committed a crime in Austin. He he was not um, he was not innocent. He I'll never forget he when he told me about the crime himself. All I knew was I corresponded with eleven guys on death row around the country, most of whom were in Texas. <laughs> More guys on death yeah. row there. None of them were innocent. For some reason, innocent guys don't write me. I don't know what that <laughs> says about me, but all my guys were guilty. So I didn't get to, I didn't get to do that. And, um, and I see that as my path. I, I think mm. there's a reason why I got the guys that I got. I'm sorry, I do. Mm. Um, I just, I assume that there's a reason for it. Um, it's pretty heavy shit. Mm. <laughs> so uh, then... Um, Jonathan was the first one to get an execution date, and he suddenly, this guy I'd only corresponded with, um, my phone rings at my house, and um, 
I can't remember. There's a way that recently they had the number at the prison, but I can't remember why. Or maybe he got it from somebody else. He got it from somebody else that visited him. And he says, Steve, this is Jonathan Nobles. And at first I didn't know what to say, but basically what had happened, I said, well, how are you able to call me? And he said, well, you start having more privileges when you get an execution date. And mm-hmm. they start bending the rules a little bit. And he didn't have anybody in his family that he could locate, and he wanted, and this seems like a horrible thing to ask somebody to do, but they do it because they want to feel connected to something before they go. But he wanted, he had a date that was serious, as they say. He didn't see any way. He had one very far-fetched appeal. He was trying to make an appeal, appeal based on the fact that, that he wanted to donate his organs and, and that arrangements had to be made for that. But he was a methamphetamine addict. Nobody, his organs were not donatable, and mm. and so they didn't even it didn't even get to court. But I, you know, I, I didn't have the heart to tell him that when he when mm. he said it. Um, but I knew it. I, I mm. can't donate my organs. It is really yeah. I had hepatitis C. I mean, I, right. I've been cured of it, but I, I, I'm I'm not eligible as an organ donor. Um, but. Um, he asked me to witness, and how do you say no to a dying man's last request? So, and what he did was, I never. He told me when I when I was visiting him, I started visiting him face to face because I thought I should get to know him. And so I visited him over. The, it was about six months till he was actually executed. I visited him every chance I got. Every time I had a few days off the road, I went to instead of going home, I went to Huntsville, Texas, and visited the guy and. On death row, and it's a drag. It's a spirit killing mm. thing. De- death row inmates in Texas are never allowed contact with anyone but guards ever again from the time that they're convicted. They're never allowed to touch. If they do have someone that comes visit them, they do have someone that loves them. They can't touch them. They're not allowed any type of contact, not even through bars. It's all sealed off and you're talking through wire. And so what happens after executions, if they do have family members, is they rush to the funeral home to touch them before they turn cold. Wow. And it's it's very common. Johnson's case, he didn't have anybody. He asked me. His aunt actually showed up at the last minute and stood next to me when he was executed. But I just, um, you know, I got through that. I don't know how I got through it. And um, this is, you know, I, I don't know why I was asked to do that. I do it differently. I kind of try to avoid it now. I don't yeah. get very close to inmates because I think I've absorbed as much death as I can, but the shock to me in the whole thing, because I got to know a lot of guards and a lot, and I, I, I demonstrated outside of that prison a lot, and I've been pushed around by those guards and by cops. And For demonstrating against the death against penalty. Against the death penalty, and, and I... But I had this huge amount of empathy when I walked away for the people that had to participate in this horrific act. Mm. So I guess I'm getting somewhere about that one thing. I was, and, I, and I got crossways with other uh, people that work against the death penalty after that. But, you know, it's all kinds of, you know, I, I've had to send hold hands with people that were fundamentalist Christians and absolutely opposed to, to opposed to abortion under any circumstances. Mm. And their beliefs are more consistent than mine because I'm opposed to the death penalty, but I'm not opposed to women doing what they need to to have, you know, uh, it's not a spiritual question. It is a political question. And those are the places where we get crossways with, with our spirituality. But, but I also think 
being a 12 step person helps there because we're, we're, we're really big on the idea that it's, they call it these things practices for a reason. We're practicing, we're, we're trying to get better. It's Mm. progress. It's not perfection. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, my politics are my politics, spirituality is spirituality. Um, I try to be very respectful of people's beliefs. That's one thing that's changed. Mm. I, I watch Bill Maher's program every Friday night, but he really pisses me off mm. when he starts talking about religion. Mm. And um, because it's, when you start, atheism at that level is kind of a religion for one thing. It's Absolutely. Form, it's intolerant. Yeah. It's, it's, it's intolerance. And so it's one of those, I've seen people that, that I'm reasonably sure I'm not a Christian or anything close to it. And I kind of never have been. I grew up in the Methodist church. As far as I know, we worship ice cream freezers, but Hmm. I don't like, you know, my, my spirituality always came from this alternative stuff that we've been talking Mm -hmm, about. mm -hmm. I took LSD the first time when I was 14 years old. And, and that's the moment at which I personally became aware I wondered about whether there was a God before that. I don't know when it started, but I can remember sitting in church wondering whether this was real yeah. before I ever took LSD. And then I took LSD, and all of a sudden I went, oh, well, now what do I do? <laughs> you know, so it opens up at that point. Yeah. Bernie Glassman, who's a, you've met and who's a Buddhist teacher that right. I have a lot of regards for, started a few years ago framing anything he was saying with the words, in my opinion, because he didn't want to uh, impose, um, he, he, he's such a believer in inclusiveness, including non-believers. And um, I think the policy question on abortion is not about whether or not you believe personally that you or people you love should have an abortion as much as whether you want to impose your religious beliefs and conception of when the soul you know, becomes a person uh, on everybody else. Right. I mean, that's, that's the policy question there. You could be personally completely against abortion, uh, religiously and also be pro-choice because of respect for people with different belief systems. Oh yeah. I mean, look, I, 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 I'm carnivorous. I eat meat. Um, but I can't kill anything anymore. I occasionally humiliate a fish before I put him back in the Mm. water, you know, and I'm probably shouldn't be okay with that, but next life, uh, you know, so far I'm fishing, but, but I don't. I did hunt and fish, and I, and I don't see anything wrong with it overall. Especially being, it's it's it would be hypocritical. Somebody's got to kill stuff if I'm going to eat it. You know, there's a lot of reasons. We probably eat way too much meat, and we do it wrong, and we do it because of commerce, not because of anything else. It, because we've been brainwashed to believe it, because it makes a lot of money for a lot of people. But you know. There's so many contradictions in what I believe and, you know, on what level. And I don't, um, you know, you know, I struggle with those things every day. That's part of what my, the spiritual practice that, that I, you know, I'm, I'm, you get older and all that stuff starts to be reach critical mass and you start having to get serious about all that stuff. And, yeah, it's and, amazing. And getting wrestle with it every single day. It's, it's really, uh, I always had uh, some of these conversations inside my head, but they have a different uh, intensity in my 60s than they did in my 20s. There's yeah. just no question yeah. about it. I did think about it as a teenager and in my 20s and even as a kid, but not, it, it's, it, it's a little realer. The, the, 
we have about 10 or 12 minutes left. And, be, and speaking of religions, I just wanted to get you to talk about your experience uh, with David Broza in Israel, working with people of different religions in, right. in, in, that, in that culture. It's, it's a, I think it's, yeah. it's, it, it somehow connects and it's something. Well, I guess like we, have to to explain, we have to explain who David is. Yeah. David yeah. is in, in, in Israel, David is me, Bruce Springsteen, and a bag of chips. He's a singer, songwriter, um, activist. Um, he was um, he was born in Jaffa. He's Israeli, but he grew up in Spain and and England. Uh, his parents are his family are old Zionists pre, you know, uh, Israel as we know it. Zionists. They came there when it was called Palestine, when it was a British protectorate. Uh, they're Spanish. Um, they but they came. His family came in the 1890s and been there a long, long time. Um, I think his grandfather's on the old Palestinian money or something. You know? Oh, wow. it really goes yeah. back that far. Yeah. But he um, he uh, he wrote this song that became the the you know Israeli peace anthem for people and was one of the founders of, of peace. Now, yeah, I, it was around the Lebanon War. I think he the was context. in. The, he was he came back to Israel to 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 do his service, his, his obligatory military service and drew the short straw. And he was, you know, deployed during the, you know, the Lebanon war and he suffered PTSD and he was yeah. treated for it. And during that treatment, he wrote this song that's become, it, you know, it's, it, it's, it's even beyond give peace a chance. It's like, it's, we shall overcome. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's the anthem of, of, of the peace movement, just like that was the anthem, uh, became the anthem of the civil rights movement here in the United States. So uh, he had this dream for years of making a um, um, a record with a half Palestinian, half Israeli band in a Palestinian-owned studio in East Jerusalem. And he asked me to produce it. And so I went over there. Uh, I'd been thinking about this part of the world for years. I, ma I made a record called Jerusalem, which was a result of me thinking about this part of the world that I'd never seen. I just realized after 9-11 how much it was affecting my life. And this question of how people killing each other over how they worship the same God, the God of Abraham. The Jews, Muslims, and Christians worship the same God. And they hold this one city. They all hold it you know, sacred. sacred equally. And, and the idea, you know, there's, to me, there's only one solution to that, but it's the one thing nobody wants to talk about. It's a very, very, very tough thing. And so all I can do is, um, I went, I'm, you know, I'm not scared of Roger Waters and I just kind of, I wanted to go there. <laughs> Roger Waters, who's Pink Floyd, is one of the leaders of the uh, movement for a boycott, a cultural boycott of, of, of Israel and has tried to persuade a lot of musicians not to play there successfully in some instances, unsuccessfully in your case. Uh, and, and maybe it's worth just before telling, completing the story about David, why, why you don't support the boycott? Obviously, um, there are human rights violations there. Personal, are, a personal experience in Arizona. I, I, you know, I thought, well, okay, various boycotts work, cultural, you know, but they're not really cultural boycotts that, that, that most people are, are talking about. Big tours bring a lot of money into, and so I sort of understand 
Uh, we're going through it right now with North Carolina. And I, by the way, I, I think you know one of my other clients, Laura Jane Grace, is transgender. Right. And she has decided to play North Carolina. Yeah, I'm going to play North Carolina. For exactly the same reason that you went to Israel. She, she respects what Springsteen and others did of canceling, but she feels she can't be intimidated out of there. Right. And she's going there to organize. Well, I, I, I boycotted Arizona because of their immigration policy. And, I, and I'm somebody that that's personally touches because I grew up in occupied Mexico from San Antonio, Texas. And, and I, I really firmly believe that those people that all that vitriol was focused on didn't cross a border, the border crossed them. That's part of our history. So it's one of those things. And I've known that all my life. It's, it's part of who I am. And, and um, you know, it's, it's one of the main things that made me different than some of the other people that grew up to make Texas what it is today, mm. I guess, you know. And not just because I left. It was a different time. And, and it was being this. It was being a hippie. It was being... And that's kind of what I am. But um, but I made them, I, because I was asked by friends of mine who are bigger rock stars than I am um, to boycott Arizona, I did for a couple of tours. And then I started getting these letters and emails, and I realized that I had abandoned an audience that didn't believe and was fighting very hard against what the what the governor was doing in Arizona. And I had abandoned them. And that what I really needed to do was come there and lend them a voice and, you know, you know, carry what they had to say about it to other parts of the country and to the world. That's what I can do. Go there and sing about it and, 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 you know, talk about it. And that's my, that's my job. And so I, I spent a couple of tours going back to Arizona and apologizing to the audience before I played another. I've kind of stopped doing that now. I hope I'm, I hope I've made that amend. And, um, Anyway, but, um, so but, so Bros asked you to go there. He asked me to go. And I, my first trip to Israel, and I've been back since, um, I, I I landed in Tel Aviv. David picked me up at the airport. I went straight to East Jerusalem, checked into the Ambassador Hotel, and walked down the hill to this little studio owned by a band called Sabine, who was sort of the Palestinian band. And at first, we didn't know whether the Arabs were going to show up. It was just us and David's rhythm section who were, who were all Jews. And, you know, the engineers were there, but everybody was just sort of... There was a conversation going on that we weren't part of about whether they were going to show up because, you know, mostly about Gaza because, um, you know, Hamas controls Gaza. And Hamas watches the Internet. And so there were people that were afraid to come. They were afraid that they knew we were making a film and they wanted to know what was going to happen with that footage, at least in the short term. And after assurances that it wasn't going to be seen anywhere immediately, uh, people started showing up, and the musicians came, and we made a really a record. I'm really, really proud of. We recorded my song Jerusalem. Um, you know, it was it changed my life. Uh, and I was asked back to do this concert that David does at the foot of Masada every year. Of course, when we did it, we did it without an audience and did it over the internet because it was it's another it was, wartime. It yeah. was too well. We were as far away from war as they'd ever been when we made the record. When I came back for the Masada concert. The, the summer war had broken out in Gaza. and um, So the know. record, to just explain, it was a combination of, of, of Muslim and, and Muslims and Jews and Christians? Also. Yeah, yeah the, there, were, there were Christians involved. And, you know, I mean, well, I don't know what I am. And, um, but it was, um, yeah, there were Christians in the... Um, um, there were Arab Christians, weren't there? There were Arab, an Arab Christian singer. There were Christians and Jews and Arabs in the choir, in the children's choir that we use, because that's the whole point of that 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 children's choir. But it, but Muslims were also 
part of it, yes. Oh yeah. yeah. No, no, there were there were plenty of Muslims. There there were there were the, the, there were two Ud players of you know, the, it it was it was pretty cool and it was uh, a rapper who grew up in who grew up not just in in you know, it it wasn't Palestine, it wasn't Israel, it was the refugee camps, which have existed since right. the 67 wars. David's there today. I just got a text from him. He just went in and took the kids. He, he's been taking these sort of music workshops into the refugee camp. He went in and took 30 kids out of the refugee camps and took them to Sabine's studio where we made the record. Mm-hmm. And they're there. To, well, they probably are finished by now because it's about, you know. It's about ten o'clock at night there, but they they've been there all day, and he and Isa and and my friends in Jerusalem are are there today. He does that kind of stuff every day, David Brosa. So the album is called East Jerusalem, West Jerusalem. Yes. Yeah, and there's also a film which is getting ready to be available, I think, in all those places that you can stream yeah. and download movies soon. I think that deal's finally on. Good, finally good, done. good. So just one last thing, because I know you've talked about another influence on you was the book with Carlos Castaneda. Right. And uh, just curious what, you're, what, what about that got to you and what any of it stay with you? Yeah, because he got all that stuff from a lot of places I discovered. Look, I, I had no trouble believing that Carlos Castaneda met a Yaki sorcerer who tried to initiate him into this 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 spirituality, this system. I had no bl- trouble believing that he turned into a crow or that he flew, you know. But when he got a lizard and sewed their mouth shut with a with with a an agave fiber and the needle from a cactus. Then he started, my, my, my suspension of disbelief started to kick in. It was the stuff that they did in the, in the spiritual world. You know, that was, that was easy. Then it turns out, we find out later, those books have disappeared because the people that gave Carlos Castaneda his doctorate based on the first book, you know, were so embarrassed about it that they've, they, they were out of print for years and years and you could not get them. And, um, the publisher, everybody sort of just, you'd go online and look for it and couldn't find them. Now I think they're available again. But you could still look at it as mythology or metaphor. It was great or, writing. This Tales of Powers was still one of the best books I've ever read. Yeah. He should have stopped when he when he jumped into the abyss, but he didn't. He came back <laughs> and he wrote four more books. Yeah. I know some people that knew him, and I know uh, I know a woman that was involved in a cult with these that was at the, at the center of which were these women that had all lived with him at the end of his life. And uh, that, that's still people like that running around. And I, I fish in New Mexico and Arizona and, and, and Colorado. But but it was, um, you know, that stuff is, um, you know, I'm the same way about the Harry Potter books. I, I think the Harry Potter books tell kids that death is part of life. Mm. And they tell adults that too. If you stick with them the way that I have, yeah. there's something in that. There's there's something else in those books, and that was, it was a form of escapism. It was something I did, you know, rather than take drugs. I didn't take drugs and read. I never read when I was high, you know. It was when I didn't have any dope that I read, mm-hmm. and and so it was an escape. There's not any doubt about that. But it introduced me to a lot of spiritual principles that that he took from from Hindu. You know, disciplines and Buddhism and a lot of other places. And, and Carl Jung, right. you know, it's all in there. He was a, you know, he was a scholar, yeah. you know, but he was also a bit of a huckster and, and a really, really good writer and storyteller. Yeah. So yeah. he just kept going and, and, and uh, I bought it. I don't, um, 
I'm less embarrassed by the fact that I bought it with every day that I stay on the planet. Mm. Yeah, you know, I bought it, and I and I st- I don't believe that it, they're true, but I don't regret reading them, and, and I think I'm ready to read them again now that you bring it up. I've been thinking about going back to one of them just to get a flavor of it at least. Uh, yeah. So we're in an election year, uh, so I want to just sort of end end with that. These these podcasts tend to go up online several weeks after we do it. So as we're speaking, it's going to be the night of the several northeastern primaries, Pennsylvania and others, and. Uh, it's a good chance Hillary Clinton's going right. to win them. Both of us have been, or for Bernie. Um, but I'm more interested in this Trump phenomenon and, and what what do you think it says about the country and how does a moral person have compassion for the pain that obviously a lot of these audiences have, you know, that, that he's exploiting and that, and, and, and what in my opinion, and I assume yours, the disaster he would be if he ever got any more power than he has by dint of being a rich guy. Uh, what's going on in the country, do you think? That, it, does it feel different from you, or is this an ongoing saga kind of since it's, it's civil an ongoing, rights It's an ongoing saga, but it's reached critical mass. There's not any doubt about it. Um, some of it's inherent in our DNA as a country. We're not the high-quality democracy that we make ourselves out to be to begin with. We're, we're a democracy that was designed to protect capitalism. And that's the truth. And I truly believe that. We were set up to protect, to protect the rights of landowners uh, who just didn't want to pay their taxes. And we're still kind of, you know, rich yeah. farmers that don't want to pay our taxes. Or at least that's who matters. And, yeah. and everybody else is, is some form of cannon fodder. Yes, we're a nation of immigrants. But, but you know, we, we want those people to come so they can, you know, so they can clean our houses and and make falafels. We're not really interested in. We tell them that that everybody has a shot, but it's not really strictly true. Uh, they have to let somebody come up every once in a while to keep the whole to keep the Ponzi scheme going. Basically, yeah, they need a symbolic uh, success yeah, story. Well, that's Marx. That's I'm sorry, but that's 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 you know Marx 101 is is the way you oppress the 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 lowest classes is to keep the bourgeoisie convinced that they they've got a shot at the brass the big right. brass ring and right. they will hold those people down for you it's right. one of those things <laughs> it's it's just it, and, they, and they do that by you constantly tell them ah these others these people they're coming they want everything for free and they you know and you're gonna have to spend more and more of your tax dollars you know, to to take care Do of. Do you these feel people. that the people, any of the people you grew up with, buy into this? I mean, you, you come from a, sure. a, a, a part of, of the do. country that skews Republican in the last thirty years. Yeah, no, a lot of people probably buy into it, and probably the more working class ones are the ones that do. And that's yeah. where that's where this 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 is. I, I consider it to be a test for my socialism, a test for you know my my political self and for my spiritual self, because I do think that. If you don't think that reality television does damage, then look at this moment, right? Yeah. It's a it's a direct result of, of, of A thinking that Fox is news, B thinking that reality television's real. <laughs> and neither thing is true. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry, but and and but so you have to you have to accept that they are diluted. They have bought it's been it's been going on for a long time. Uh, yes, they brought it on themselves. But a very, it was systematically 
designed for them and fed to them consistently over years and years and years. And now they're turning around and they're lashing out. But and Trump is just I mean, this is a this is a failed businessman who would have been completely out of the picture a long time ago if it wasn't for reality. Absolutely. No, he he would have been. I mean, he's how do you make a how do you make a billion dollars in the real estate business in New York? Start with two. two. (laughs) He's that guy. So it's one of those deals. Well, he's uh, he's good on TV. That's for sure. So what's a good person supposed to do? Who are your heroes at this moment in time in living? You've you've sung a lot about heroes of the past. Woody Guthrie and. Uh, others but Ram Das yeah. Ram Das um, is a big one right now and I, I don't know why I, I mean I, I have you to thank for that partially because I had a connection already uh, but you know my 60th birthday we went to Hawaii and I met Ram Das and that's, that has gotten out of my mind and my heart since and, and it's caused a lot of things that have happened in the last year or so to happen I really want to take my son to see Ram Das I want to see what John Henry mm. who has autism will think of Ram Das and what Ram Das will think mm. of him and it's, it's, it is literally equally I'm equally curious about both, <laughs> about both questions so uh, you know I don't um um, Bernie Sanders is is you, you have to admire him right now because of the way he's carried himself. Mm. He could have been Ralph Nader. Uh, yeah. He could have been a lot of things. There, he made some mistakes early on. Uh, I think you know. Look, it's he comes from a state where there aren't any black people, yeah. and 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 the truth is, look, I, I'm I'm I believe everything that Karl Marx says about economics in those two books. That's really a, at at. at the core of who I am when you put spirituality aside, but, but, um, if you can, and, but, you know, it, it's, it, it, all these questions are economic un- unless you're black. Yeah. And then race is an issue. Yeah. Especially for African Americans. Yeah. More, I mean, it is for everybody. It is for other ethnicities too, because this is a nation that was sort of designed to be a haven for white people. It was only, it was only about white people. Um, but, um, only one race were slaves. Absolutely. Only, only one, there was only one group of people that were brought here in chains. And, and the truth is, that makes it even more important if you understand the history of there were free black people here. Right. You know, and some of them owned slaves. Hmm. Some of them owned black slaves. It was so, such a part of our DNA that, um, you know, uh, slave, uh, Condoleezza Rice, I don't quote her very much, um, but she said somewhere, and I may be paraphrasing, that we suffer, the, this country suffers from our birth defect and it yeah. is slavery. It, it, we, we deal with it every day. All right, thank you, and uh, thanks for thanks for being my pal. Oh man, thank you for asking me over here. All right, later. Okay.